Section 22 of Three Years in Europe, or Places I Have Seen and People I Have Met. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Three Years in Europe, or Places I Have Seen and People I Have Met, by William Wells Brown. Letter 22. A NARRATIVE OF AMERICAN SLAVERY Although the first slaves introduced into the American colonies from the coast of Africa were negroes of a very dark complexion with woolly hair, and it was thought that slavery would be confined to the blacks, yet the present slave population of America is far from being black. This change in color is attributable solely to the unlimited power which the slave-owner exercises over his victim. There being no lawful marriage amongst slaves, and no encouragement to slave women to be virtuous and chaste, there seems to be no limits to the system of amalgamation carried on between master and slave. This accounts for the fact that most persons who go from Europe, or from the free states into Carolina or Virginia, are struck with the different shades of color amongst the slaves. On a plantation employing fifty slaves, it is not uncommon to see one-third of them mulattoes, and some of these nearly white. In the year 1831, there resided in the state of Virginia a slave who was so white that no one would suppose for a moment that a drop of African blood coursed through his veins. His skin was fair, hair soft, straight, fine, and white. His eyes blue, nose prominent, lips thin, his head well formed, forehead high and prominent, and he was often taken for a white free person by those who did not know him. This made his condition as a slave still more intolerable, for one so white seldom ever receives fair treatment at the hands of his fellow slaves, and the whites usually regard such slaves as persons who, if not often flogged and otherwise ill-treated, to remind them of their condition, would soon forget that they were slaves, and think themselves as good as white folks. During that year, an insurrection broke out amongst the slave population, known as the Southampton Rebellion, or the Nat Turner Insurrection. Five or six hundred slaves, believing in the doctrine that all men are created equal, armed with such weapons as they could get, commenced a war for freedom. Amongst these was George, the white slave of whom we have spoken. He had been employed as a house-servant, and had heard his master and visitors speak of the downtrodden and oppressed Poles. He heard them talk of going to Greece to fight for Grecian liberty, and against the oppressors of that ill-fated people. George, fired with the love of freedom and zeal for the cause of his enslaved countrymen, joined the insurrection. The results of that struggle for liberty is well known. The slaves were defeated, and those who were not taken prisoners took refuge in the dismal swamps. These were ordered to surrender, but instead of doing so, they challenged their proud oppressors to take them and immediately renewed the war. A ferocious struggle now commenced between the parties, but not until the United States troops were called in did they succeed in crushing a handful of men and women who were fighting for freedom. 
the negroes were hunted with dogs and many who were caught were burnt alive while some were hung and others flogged and banished from the state among those who were sentenced to be hanged was george he was placed in prison to await the day of execution which would give him ten days to prepare for his doom george was the son of a member of the american congress his mother being a servant in the principal hotel in washington where members of congress usually put up after the birth of george his mother was sold to a negro trader and he to a virginian who sent agents through the country to buy up young slaves to raise for the market george was only about nineteen years of age when he unfortunately became connected with the insurrection mr green who owned george was a comparatively good master and prided himself on treating his slaves better than most men this gentleman was also the owner of a girl who was perfectly white with straight hair and prominent features this girl was said to be the daughter of her own master a feeling of attachment sprang up between mary and george which proved to be more than mere friendship and upon which we base the burden of this narrative after poor george had been sentenced to death and cast into prison mary begged and obtained leave to visit george and administer to him the comforts of religion as she was a member of a religious body while george was not as george had been a considerable favorite with mrs green mary had no difficulty in obtaining permission to pay a daily visit to him to whom she had pledged her heart and hand at one of these meetings and only four days from the time fixed for the execution while mary was seated in george's cell it occurred to her that she might yet save him from a felon's doom she revealed to him the secret that was then occupying her thoughts viz that george should exchange clothes with her and thus attempt his escape in disguise but he would not for a single moment listen to the proposition not that he feared detection but he would not consent to place an innocent and affectionate girl in a position where she might have to suffer for him mary pleaded but in vain george was inflexible the poor girl left her lover with a heavy heart regretting that her scheme had proved unsuccessful towards the close of the next day mary again appeared at the prison door for admission and was soon by the side of him whom she so ardently loved while there the clouds which had overhung the city for some hours broke and the rain fell in torrents amid the most terrific thunder and lightning in the most persuasive manner possible mary again importuned george to avail himself of her assistance to escape from an ignominious death after assuring him that she not being the person condemned would not receive any injury he at last consented and they began to exchange apparel as george was of small stature and both were white there was no difficulty in his passing out without detection and as she usually left the cell weeping with handkerchief in hand and sometimes at her face he had only to adopt this mode and his escape was safe they had kissed each other and mary had told george where he would find a small parcel of provisions which she had placed in a secluded spot when the prison keeper opened the door and said come girl it is time for you to go george again embraced mary and passed out of the jail it was already dark 
and the street lamps were lighted, so that our hero in his new dress had no dread of detection. The provisions were sought out and found, and poor George was soon on the road towards Canada. But neither of them had once thought of a change of dress for George when he should have escaped, and he had walked but a short distance before he felt that a change of his apparel would facilitate his progress. But he dared not go amongst even his colored associates for fear of being betrayed. However, he made the best of his way on towards Canada, hiding in the woods during the day, and traveling by the guidance of the North Star at night. One morning, George arrived on the banks of the Ohio River, and found his journey had terminated, unless he could get someone to take him across the river in a secret manner, for he would not be permitted to cross in any of the ferry-boats, it being a penalty for crossing a slave, besides the value of the slave. He concealed himself in the tall grass and weeds near the river, to see if he could embrace an opportunity to cross. He had been in his hiding-place but a short time, when he observed a man in a small boat floating near the shore, evidently fishing. His first impulse was to call out to the man, and ask him to take him over to the Ohio side. But the fear that the man was a slaveholder, or one who might possibly arrest him, deterred him from it. The man, after rowing and floating about for some time, fastened the boat to the root of a tree, and started to a neighboring farmhouse. This was George's moment, and he seized it. Running down the bank, he unfastened the boat, jumped in, and, with all the expertness of one accustomed to a boat, rowed across the river, and landed on the Ohio side. Being now in a free state, he thought he might, with perfect safety, travel on towards Canada. He had, however, gone but a few miles when he discovered two men on horseback coming behind him. He felt sure that they could not be in pursuit of him, yet he did not wish to be seen by them. So he turned into another road, leading to a house nearby. The men followed, and were but a short distance from George when he ran up to a farmhouse, before which was standing a farmer-looking man, in a broad-brimmed hat and straight-collared coat, whom he implored to save him from the slave-catchers. The farmer told him to go into the barn nearby. He entered by the front door, the farmer following and closing the door behind George, but remaining outside, and gave directions to his hired man as to what should be done with George. The slaveholders by this time had dismounted, and were in the front of the barn demanding admittance, and charging the farmer with secreting their slave-woman for George was still in the dress of a woman. The friend, for the farmer proved to be a member of the Society of Friends, told the slave-owners that if they wished to search his barn, they must first get an officer and a search-warrant. While the parties were disputing, the farmer began nailing up the front door, and the hired man served the back door in the same way. The slaveholders, finding that they could not prevail on the friend to allow them to get the slave, determined to go in search of an officer. One was left to see that the slave did not escape from the barn, while the other went off at full speed to Mount Pleasant, the nearest town. George was not the slave of either of these men, nor were they in pursuit of him, but they had lost a woman who had been seen in that vicinity, and when they saw poor George in the disguise of a female, and attempting to elude pursuit, 
they felt sure they were close upon their victim. However, if they had caught him, although he was not their slave, they would have taken him back and placed him in jail, and there he would have remained until his owner arrived. After an absence of nearly two hours, the slave owner returned with an officer and found the friend still driving large nails into the door. In a triumphant tone, and with a corresponding gesture, he handed the search warrant to the friend, and said, "'There, sir, now I will see if I can't get my nigger.' "'Well,' said the friend, "'thou hast gone to work according to law, and thou can now go into my barn.' "'Lend me your hammer that I may get the door open,' said the slaveholder. "'Let me see the warrant again.' and after reading it over once more, he said, I see nothing in this paper which says I must supply thee with tools to open my door. If thou wishest to go in, thou must get a hammer elsewhere. The sheriff said, I will go to a neighboring farm and borrow something which will introduce us to Miss Dinah, and he immediately went in search of tools. In a short time, the officer returned, and they commenced an assault and battery upon the barn door, which soon yielded, and in went the slaveholder and officer, and began turning up the hay and using all other means to find the lost property. But to their astonishment, the slave was not there. After all hope of getting Dinah was gone, the slave owner, in a rage, said to the friend, "'My nigger is not here.' I did not tell thee there was any one here. Yes, but I saw her go in, and you shut the door behind her, and if she was not in the barn, what did you nail the door for? Can't I do what I please with my own barn door? Now I will tell thee, thou need trouble thyself no more, for the person thou art after entered the front door and went out at the back door, and is a long way from here by this time. Thou and thy friend must be somewhat fatigued by this time. Won't thou go in and take a little dinner with me? We need not say that this cool invitation of the good Quaker was not accepted by the slaveholders. George, in the meantime, had been taken to a friend's dwelling some miles away, where, after laying aside his female attire, and being snugly dressed up in a straight-collared coat and pantaloons to match, was again put on the right road towards Canada. Two weeks after this found him in the town of St. Catharines, working on the farm of Colonel Strutt, and attending a night school. George, however, did not forget his promise to use all means in his power to get Mary out of slavery. He therefore labored with all his might to obtain money with which to employ someone to go back to Virginia for Mary. After nearly six months' labor at St. Catharines, he employed an English missionary to go and see if the girl could be purchased, and at what price. The missionary went accordingly, but returned with the sad intelligence that on account of Mary's aiding George to escape, the court had compelled Mr. Green to sell her out of the state, and she had been sold to a negro trader, and taken to the New Orleans market. As all hope of getting the girl was now gone, George resolved to quit the American continent forever. He immediately took passage in a vessel laden with timber bound for Liverpool, and in five weeks from that time he was standing on the quay of the great English seaport. 
with little or no education, he found many difficulties in the way of getting a respectable living. However, he obtained a situation as porter in a large house in Manchester, where he worked during the day and took private lessons at night. In this way he labored for three years and was then raised to the situation of a clerk. George was so white as easily to pass for a white man, and being somewhat ashamed of his African descent, he never once mentioned the fact of his having been a slave. He soon became a partner in the firm that employed him, and was now on the road to wealth. In the year 1842, just ten years after George Green, for he adopted his master's name, arrived in England, he visited France, and spent some days at Dunkirk. It was towards sunset, on a warm day in the month of October, that Mr. Green, after strolling some distance from the Hotel de Leon, entered a burial ground, and wandered long alone among the silent dead, gazing upon the many green graves and marble tombstones of those who once moved on the theatre of busy life, and whose sounds of gaiety once fell upon the ear of man. All nature around was hushed in silence, and seemed to partake of the general melancholy which hung over the quiet resting-place of departed mortals. After tracing the varied inscriptions which told the characters or conditions of the departed, and viewing the mounds neath which the dust of mortality slumbered, he had now reached a secluded spot, near to where an aged weeping willow bowed its thick foliage to the ground, as though anxious to hide from the scrutinizing gaze of curiosity the grave beneath it. Mr. Green seated himself upon a marble tomb, and began to read Roscoe's Leo X, a copy of which he had under his arm. It was then about twilight, and he had scarcely gone through half a page when he observed a lady in black leading a boy some five years old up one of the paths, and as the lady's black veil was over her face, he felt somewhat at liberty to eye her more closely. While looking at her, the lady gave a scream and appeared to be in a fainting position, when Mr. Green sprang from his seat in time to save her from falling to the ground. At this moment, an elderly gentleman was seen approaching with a rapid step, who, from his appearance, was evidently the lady's father, or one intimately connected with her. He came up, and, in a confused manner, asked what was the matter. Mr. Green explained as well as he could. After taking up the smelling-bottle which had fallen from her hand, and holding it a short time to her face, she soon began to revive. During all this time, the lady's veil had so covered her face that Mr. Green had not seen it. When she had so far recovered as to be able to raise her head, she again screamed and fell back into the arms of the old man. It now appeared quite certain that either the countenance of George Green or some other object was the cause of these fits of fainting, and the old gentleman, thinking it was the former, in rather a petulant tone, said, I will thank you, sir, if you will leave us alone. The child whom the lady was leading had now set up a squall, and amid the death-like appearance of the lady, the harsh look of the old man, and the cries of the boy, Mr. Green left the grounds and returned to his hotel. Whilst seated by the window, and looking out upon the crowded street with every now and then the strange scene in the graveyard vividly before him, Mr. Green thought of the book he had been reading, 
and remembering that he had left it on the tomb where he had suddenly dropped it when called to the assistance of the lady he immediately determined to return in search of it after a walk of some twenty minutes he was again over the spot where he had been an hour before and from which he had been so unceremoniously expelled by the old man he looked in vain for the book it was nowhere to be found nothing save a bouquet which the lady had dropped and which lay half buried in the grass from having been trodden upon indicated that any one had been there that evening mr green took up the bunch of flowers and again returned to the hotel after passing a sleepless night and hearing the clock strike six he dropped into a sweet sleep from which he did not awake until roused by the rap of a servant who entering his room handed him a note which ran as follows sir i owe you an apology for the inconveniences to which you were subjected last evening and if you will honour us with your presence to dinner to-day at four o'clock i shall be most happy to give you due satisfaction my servant will be in waiting for you at half-past three i am sir your obedient servant j divenant october twenty three to george green esq the servant who handed this note to mr green informed him that the bearer was waiting for a reply he immediately resolved to accept the invitation and replied accordingly who this person was and how his name and the hotel where he was stopping had been found out was indeed a mystery however he waited impatiently for the hour when he was to see this new acquaintance and get the mysterious meeting in the graveyard solved the clock on a neighboring church had scarcely ceased striking three when the servant announced that a carriage had called for mr green in less than half an hour he was seated in a most sumptuous barouche drawn by two beautiful iron greys and rolling along over a splendid gravel road completely shaded by large trees which appeared to have been the accumulating growth of many centuries the carriage soon stopped in front of a low villa and this too was embedded in magnificent trees covered with moss mr green alighted and was shown into a superb drawing-room the walls of which were hung with fine specimens from the hands of the great italian painters and one by a german artist representing a beautiful monkish legend connected with the holy catherine and illustrious lady of alexandria the furniture had an antique and dignified appearance high-backed chairs stood around the room a venerable mirror stood on the mantel-shelf rich curtains of crimson damask hung in folds at either side of the large windows and a rich turkey carpet covered the floor in the centre stood a table covered with books in the midst of which was an old-fashioned vase filled with fresh flowers whose fragrance was exceedingly pleasant a faint light together with the quietness of the hour gave beauty beyond description to the whole scene Mr. Green had scarcely seated himself upon the sofa when the elderly gentleman whom he had met the previous evening made his appearance, followed by the little boy, and introduced himself as Mr. Divenant. A moment more, and a lady, a beautiful brunette, dressed in black, with long curls of a chestnut color hanging down her cheeks, entered the room. Her eyes were of a dark hazel, 
and her whole appearance indicated that she was a native of a southern clime. The door at which she entered was opposite to where the two gentlemen were seated. They immediately rose, and Mr. Divenant was in the act of introducing her to Mr. Green, when he observed that the latter had sunk back upon the sofa, and the last word that he remembered to have heard was, It is her. After this, all was dark and dreamy. How long he remained in this condition, it was for another to tell. When he awoke, he found himself stretched upon the sofa, with his boots off, his neckerchief removed, shirt-collar unbuttoned, and his head resting upon a pillow. By his side sat the old man, with the smelling-bottle in the one hand, and a glass of water in the other, and the little boy standing at the foot of the sofa. As soon as Mr. Green had so far recovered as to be able to speak, he said, "'Where am I? And what does this mean?' "'Wait a while,' replied the old man, "'and I will tell you all.' After the lapse of some ten minutes, he rose from the sofa, adjusted his apparel, and said, "'I am now ready to hear anything you have to say.' "'You were born in America,' said the old man. "'Yes,' he replied. "'And you were acquainted with a girl named Mary?' continued the old man. "'Yes, and I loved her as I can love none other. "'The lady whom you met so mysteriously last evening is Mary,' replied Mr. Devenant. "'George Green was silent, but the fountains of mingled grief and joy "'stole out from beneath his eyelashes and glistened like pearls "'upon his pale and marble-like cheeks.' At this juncture the lady again entered the room. Mr. Green sprang from the sofa, and they fell into each other's arms, to the surprise of the old man and little George, and to the amusement of the servants who had crept up one by one, and were hid behind the doors or loitering in the hall. When they had given vent to their feelings, they resumed their seats, and each in turn related the adventures through which they had passed. "'How did you find out my name and address?' asked Mr. Green. After you had left us in the graveyard, our little George said, Oh, Mama, if there ain't a book, and picked it up and brought it to us. Papa opened it and said, The gentleman's name is written in it, and here is a card of the Hotel de Leon, where I suppose he is stopping. Papa wished to leave the book and said it was all a fancy of mine that I had ever seen you before, but I was perfectly convinced that you were my own George Green. Are you married? "'No, I am not.' "'Then thank God!' exclaimed Mrs. Divinon. The old man, who had been silent all this time, said, "'Now, sir, I must apologize for the trouble you were put to last evening.' "'And you are single now?' "'Yes,' she replied. "'This is indeed the Lord's doings,' said Mr. Green, at the same time bursting into a flood of tears." Although Mr. Devenant was past the age when men should think upon matrimonial subjects, yet this scene brought vividly before his eyes the days when he was a young man, and had a wife living, and he thought it time to call their attention to dinner, which was then waiting. We need scarcely add that Mr. Green and Mrs. Devenant did very little towards diminishing the dinner that day. After dinner, the lovers— for such we have to call them, gave their experience from the time that George Green left the jail, dressed in Mary's clothes. 
Up to that time, Mr. Green's was substantially as we have related it. Mrs. Devenant's was as follows. The night after you left the prison, said she, I did not shut my eyes in sleep. The next morning, about eight o'clock, Peter, the gardener, came to the jail to see if I had been there the night before, and was informed that I had, and that I left a little after dark. About an hour after, Mr. Green came himself, and I need not say that he was much surprised on finding me there, dressed in your clothes. This was the first tidings they had of your escape. What did Mr. Green say when he found that I had fled? Oh, continued Mrs. Devenant, he said to me, when no one was near, I hope George will get off, but I fear you will have to suffer in his stead. I told him that if it must be so, I was willing to die if you could live. At this moment, George Green burst into tears, threw his arms around her neck, and exclaimed, I am glad I have waited so long with the hope of meeting you again. Mrs. Devenant again resumed her story. I was kept in jail three days, during which time I was visited by the magistrates and two of the judges. On the third day I was taken out, and Master told me that I was liberated upon condition that I be immediately sent out of the state. There happened to be just at that time in the neighborhood a negro trader, and he purchased me, and I was taken to New Orleans. On the steamboat we were kept in a close room where slaves are usually confined, so that I saw nothing of the passengers on board or the towns we passed. We arrived at New Orleans, and were all put into the slave market for sale. I was examined by many persons, but none seemed willing to purchase me, as all thought me too white, and said I would run away and pass as a free white woman. On the second day, while in the slave market, and while planters and others were examining slaves and making their purchases, I observed a tall young man with long black hair eyeing me very closely, and then talking to the trader. I felt sure that my time had now come, but the day closed without my being sold. I did not regret this, for I had heard that foreigners made the worst of masters, and I felt confident that the man who eyed me so closely was not an American. The next day was the Sabbath. The bells called the people to the different places of worship. Methodists sang, and Baptists immersed, and Presbyterians sprinkled, and Episcopalians read their prayers, while the ministers of the various sects preached that Christ died for all. Yet there were some twenty-five or thirty of us poor creatures confined in the negro pen, awaiting the close of the holy Sabbath and the dawn of another day, to be again taken into the market, there to be examined like so many beasts of burden. I need not tell you with what anxiety we waited for the advent of another day. On Monday we were again brought out and placed in rows to be inspected, and fortunately for me, I was sold before we had been on the stand an hour. I was purchased by a gentleman residing in the city, for a waiting-maid for his wife, who was just on the eve of starting for Mobile, to pay a visit to a near relation. I was then dressed to suit the situation of a maid-servant, and, upon the whole, I thought that in my new dress I looked as much the lady as my mistress. On the passage to Mobile, 
who should I see among the passengers but the tall, long-haired man that had eyed me so closely in the slave market a few days before? His eyes were again on me, and he appeared anxious to speak to me, and I as reluctant to be spoken to. The first evening after leaving New Orleans, soon after twilight had let her curtain down and pinned it with a star, and while I was seated on the deck of the boat near the ladies' cabin, looking upon the rippled waves and the reflection of the moon upon the sea, all at once I saw the tall young man standing by my side. I immediately rose from my seat, and was in the act of returning to the cabin, when he, in a broken accent, said, Stop a moment. I wish to have a word with you. I am your friend. I stopped and looked him full in the face, and he said, I saw you some days since in the slave market, and I intended to have purchased you to save you from the condition of a slave. I called on Monday, but you had been sold and had left the market. I inquired and learned who the purchaser was, and that you had to go to Mobile, so I resolved to follow you. If you are willing, I will try and buy you from your present owner, and you shall be free. Although this was said in an honest and off-hand manner, I could not believe the man to be sincere in what he said. Why should you wish to set me free? I asked. I had an only sister, he replied, who died three years ago in France, and you are so much like her, that had I not known of her death, I would most certainly have taken you for her. However much I may resemble your sister, you are aware that I am not her, and why take so much interest in one whom you never saw before? The love, said he, which I had for my sister, is transferred to you. I had all along suspected that the man was a knave, and this profession of love confirmed me in my former belief, and I turned away and left him. The next day, while standing in the cabin and looking through the window, the French gentleman, for such he was, came to the window while walking on the guards, and again commenced as on the previous evening. He took from his pocket a bit of paper and put into my hand, and at the same time saying, Take this, it may some day be of service to you. Remember, it is from a friend, and left me instantly. I unfolded the paper and found it to be a $100 bank note on the United States Branch Bank at Philadelphia. My first impulse was to give it to my mistress, but upon a second thought, I resolved to seek an opportunity and to return the $100 to the stranger. Therefore I looked for him, but in vain, and had almost given up the idea of seeing him again when he passed me on the guards of the boat and walked towards the stem of the vessel. It being now dark, I approached him and offered the money to him. He declined, saying at the same time, I gave it to you. Keep it. I do not want it, I said. Now, said he, you had better give your consent for me to purchase you, and you shall go with me to France. But you cannot buy me now, I replied, for my master is in New Orleans, and he purchased me not to sell, but to retain in his own family. Would you rather remain with your present mistress than be free? No, said I. Then fly with me to-night. We shall be in Mobile in two hours from this, and when the passengers are going on shore, you can take my arm and you can escape unobserved. 
the trader who brought you to New Orleans exhibited to me a certificate of your good character, and one from the minister of the church to which you were attached in Virginia, and upon the faith of these assurances and the love I bear you, I promise before high heaven that I will marry you as soon as it can be done. This solemn promise, coupled with what had already transpired, gave me confidence in the man, and, rash as the act may seem, I determined in an instant to go with him. My mistress had been put under the charge of the captain, and as it would be past ten o'clock when the steamer would land, she accepted an invitation of the captain to remain on board with several other ladies till morning. I dressed myself in my best clothes, and put a veil over my face, and was ready on the landing of the boat. Surrounded by a number of passengers, we descended the stage leading to the wharf, and were soon lost in the crowd that thronged the quay. As we went on shore, we encountered several persons announcing the names of hotels, the starting of boats for the interior, and vessels bound for Europe. Among these was the ship Utica, Captain Pell bound for Havre. Now, said Mr. Devenant, this is your chance. The ship was to sail at twelve o'clock that night, at high tide, and following the men who were seeking passengers, we went immediately on board. Divinant told the captain of the ship that I was his sister, and for such we passed during the voyage. At the hour of twelve the Utica set sail, and we were soon out at sea. The morning after we left Mobile, Divinant met me as I came from my stateroom and embraced me for the first time. I loved him, but it was only that affection which we have for one who has done us a lasting favor. It was the love of gratitude rather than that of the heart. We were five weeks on the sea, and yet the passage did not seem long, for Divinant was so kind. On our arrival at Havre, we were married and came to Dunkirk, and I have resided here ever since. At the close of this narrative, the clock struck ten, when the old man, who was accustomed to retire at an early hour, rose to take leave, saying at the same time, I hope you will remain with us tonight. Mr. Green would fain have excused himself on the ground that they would expect him and wait at the hotel, but a look from the lady told him to accept the invitation. The old man was the father of Mrs. Devenant's deceased husband, as you will no doubt long since have supposed. A fortnight from the day on which they met in the graveyard, Mr. Green and Mrs. Devenant were joined in holy wedlock, so that George and Mary who had loved each other so ardently in their younger days, were now husband and wife. Without becoming responsible for the truthfulness of the above narrative, I give it to you, reader, as it was told to me in January last, in France, by George Green himself. A celebrated writer has justly said of woman, A woman's whole life is a history of the affections. The heart is her world. It is there her ambition strives for empire. It is there her avarice seeks for hidden treasures. She sends forth her sympathies on adventure. She embarks her whole soul in the traffic of affection. And if shipwrecked, her case is hopeless, for it is a bankruptcy of the heart. Mary had every reason to believe that she would never see George again, 
and although she confesses that the love she bore him was never transferred to her first husband, we can scarcely find fault with her for marrying Mr. Devenant. But the adherence of George Green to the resolution never to marry unless to his marry is indeed a rare instance of the fidelity of man in the matter of love. We can but blush for our country's shame when we recall to mind the fact that while George and Mary Green and numbers of other fugitives from American slavery can receive protection from any of the governments of Europe, they cannot return to their native land without becoming slaves. Fini. End of letter 22. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.